everything you need to know about Bitcoin and global macro heading into the new year. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today I have one for all you global macro junkies. We have a massive chart pack. We're going to go through it all. We're going to break down Bitcoin, rates, central banks, and what to expect in 2024. I also have a recession check. And stay till the end. We're going to talk about Bitcoin stories to watch in the new year. All right, guys, before we get into this chart pack, I want to remind our viewers about the Bitcoin Layers mission, what we're here for, and what we're trying to do when we cover global macro and Bitcoin. Now, we're not a trading service, and we're not here to pump Bitcoin. Our goal is to educate you and provide you research and analysis on all that goes on with interest rates, global macroeconomics, and Bitcoin, with, of course, Bitcoin at the center of our investment thesis. Now, in order to give you the most objective analysis possible and to avoid making trade predictions and providing you with investment advice, because you know that's not what we're here for and that's not what we do, we don't shift our calls or our narratives that often. We do make sure that we account for all that's going on in markets and in economic releases. We are, Our mission is to make sure that we're providing you with intellectual honesty. That means giving you our predictions, our bias when it comes to global macro, but also admitting when we're wrong and admitting when we have to shift our narrative. Now, before I get into what to expect for 2024, what did we expect in 2023? Well, we expected that the Fed would try to remain as restrictive as possible, but that it might come into rate cuts toward the end of 2023 as a recession became more and more inevitable. Now, we were clearly early or either wrong. Now, we were clearly either wrong or early to the recession call. We were definitely early to the rate cuts call, but what we see here is that rate cuts are starting to materialize in 2024. What we don't know is whether a recession is coming. Our bias is that it still will get here. But again, our mission is to not consistently change our narrative. So what I want to point viewers and listeners to today is our free newsletter available to you all at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe. Now we have a free newsletter and the charts that you're about to see today are charts that we feature regularly in our newsletter. And the purpose of that newsletter is to, again, provide you this economic analysis and consistent and continually updated framework on how we approach markets and investment decisions. Now, I'm going to talk about our framework here in just a second, but just a reminder, check out our free newsletter at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe, sign up, and make sure that you are staying tuned to what we are covering. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL 
for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you go sign up. Now, River is a Bitcoin-only exchange. They do not keep your Bitcoin on a third-party storage solution. They have their own method of storing Bitcoin. They also recommend that you get your Bitcoin into cold storage. Once it's purchased, they allow you to use Lightning Network. And there's these great features, including a recurring purchase on the hour. You can send Bitcoin to your friends and family now via text message. Go check them out today at river.com slash TBL. Okay, now what I want to do for the audience is give you guys a reset of the Bitcoin Layers investment framework. This is a review or for new members of the audience. Our goal is to provide you guys with as much signal as we can. And in order to provide signal, we have to strip out the noise. In order to strip out the noise, I have a very simple way to think about investing. And it is that the business cycle drives investment returns. So this is a cycle-driven approach to investing. It's something that I teach my students. I have a couple charts to demonstrate for you why we do this. But in short, the business cycle affects the central banking cycle. And both of these cycles affect investment returns directly. And so this constant obsession about recession, are we going into a recession or not? It has to do with identifying where we are in the business cycle. In order to identify where we are in the business cycle, we have to look at economic indicators. We have to look at market indicators. And in that way, we are able to assist ourselves in investment decisions, specifically whether or not to take risk. And that's what our goal is here, to provide you guys with an additional resource when making your own investment decisions. Okay, the first chart I have in order to show you what we're talking about here with the business cycle is showing you ISM manufacturing versus GDP. My goal here is to demonstrate that ISM is a good live metric for where GDP is going to be over the next three months or so. We get ISM every month, and I understand that this survey in particular is just manufacturing but it's, we're only showing you one chart at a time, and you'll see how we use multiple market and economic indicators, relate them to each other in order to figure out what is going on. So here I'm comparing in orange ISM manufacturing with GDP in purple. You can see here that the two lines track each other, although there are divergences, and sometimes there can be large divergences like you have right now, where you have GDP firmly above zero, in fact, even close to 5%, while ISM manufacturing is showing that these manufacturing firms are in contraction. That is because the reading is below 50. 50 is the line at which the ISM responses are neutral, neither in expansion or nor contraction. The next chart is showing you ISM manufacturing. Once again, in orange, but in purple this time, we have the S&P 500 year-over-year return. So this is basically looking at the last 12 months of stocks and what that return is on a, on a percentage basis and relating that to what the economy is doing specifically in the manufacturing sector. And looking back 20-plus years, what we can see here is that there is a very strong relationship between ISM manufacturing and the S&P 500 returns. 
I cannot stress this enough here for you guys. This is why we do what we do at the Bitcoin layer with a cycle-driven approach. Because the relationship is incredibly clear. When the economy is doing well and manufacturing firms are making things for people and for other businesses, the stock market does well. When those firms slow down and get less new orders and are making less things, the stock market does poorly. It sounds so simple that it might even sound too simple. But in our mission to simplify all that goes on across the economy and financial markets, this is the starting point for my students and for you guys at home. This is the starting point, that the economy and the stock market are related. We have to think about these things as one. And even though they can diverge and can and it, the relationship isn't always one-to-one, it gives us a framework to work with. Okay, guys, three core components to our framework. Number one was the cycle-driven approach to investing. Number two here is the idea that the Fed bails out everything and that the Fed has largely influenced all asset prices and therefore is one of, if not the main determinant of asset prices. Now, this becomes less, I believe it becomes less and less controversial as the years go on. I have a couple charts to demonstrate this for you and why we believe this, but basically it's this idea that the Fed will rush to bail out the financial system whenever it encounters weakness. We've seen this since 2007, 8, 9, and we believe that the Fed cannot remove the bandages that it has put on the financial system over the last 15 years and that it will continue to put more and more bandages when other things start to break. So in this next chart, I have a history, a little history of the Fed's balance sheet. QE1, quantitative easing, the first program which the Fed expanded its balance sheet in order to provide easy financial conditions to the market. When it does quantitative easing, what it's doing, it's removing treasuries from the open market. And the first order effect of the removal of treasuries from the open market is that it should lower interest rates at the margin because you have an additional buyer or basically less supply available to the private market. And that demand, that increased demand of treasuries should in theory lower the yield of treasuries and drive investors into other assets and in that way drive asset prices up and create easy financial conditions for the rest of the system. That is the theoretical justification of quantitative easing. We saw QE1 come in 2008-9. We saw QE2 happen in 2010. QE3 happened 2012-13-14 era. Now, Quantitative tightening is the opposite of quantitative easing. Easing, It is the introduction of supply on a net basis to the market of treasuries. And so it's 
a tightening financial condition because it means that more treasuries have to go into the hands of private investors, which means less capital available for other assets, which means lower asset prices in theory. Remember, this is all in theory. And then those lower asset prices should then slow down the economy via the wealth effect channel, which is when stocks and real estate go up in price, people spend more. When they go down, people spend less. So then you get the pandemic QE4. We had a brief period of rapid QE and then another period of steady QE that was actually marked basically unlimited. We're going to do it until we feel like we don't need to anymore. Well, what happened in tandem with this monetary stimulus, you had fiscal stimulus, an enormous inflation wave, and then now we are in a quantitative tightening two era, the second attempt to wind down this balance sheet. You saw what happened after QT1, the balance sheet had to expand, and the QT1 program ended months before the pandemic, and I think that's Very important to note that it wasn't the pandemic that triggered an end to the contraction of the balance sheet. So we are looking for the end of QT2 at some point, and that point, you know, could come with some stress in the financial system. But in order to forecast that, we would need a crystal ball into at what level of reserves in the system there is a over-tightness in financial conditions. I want to point people to our most recent interview with Andy Constan, in which he describes the relationship between the Fed's balance sheet, reserves, the quantity of reserves in the system, and quantitative tightening. It's a fascinating interview. If you really want to get deep into the workings of the Fed's balance sheet, and how the different components of the Fed's balance sheet affect asset prices and the financial system, you got to go check out that episode. Now, does the Fed's balance sheet drive asset prices? Our belief is yes. In orange, I have the year-over-year change in the stock market, and in purple, the year-over-year change in the size of the Fed's portfolio of securities. This is called SOMA. You might hear this referred to as SOMA, S-O-M-A. That stands for the System Open Market Account. Basically, it is the account held at the New York Fed, which owns all the government bonds and mortgage-backed securities for the Fed. So the SOMA portfolio is basically another way of saying the Fed's balance sheet. Now, We can see this relationship, although it's less strict and less clear than the other relationship we showed you between ISM and investment returns. Here, we can see a relationship between the size of the Fed's balance sheet and investment returns, but it doesn't hold as well. Now, we want to show you this early in our framework in order to explain that what the Fed is doing with its balance sheet has a massive effect on asset prices, 
But those effects can take sometimes years to play out. So we are in the middle of a big divergence here in which you see the size of the Fed's balance sheet has decreased over 14% year over year, but the stock market is up over 20% year over year. So a big divergence here. The divergence that we see, though, is a, is a cautionary tale. And it's not something that we can just say, oh, the relationship doesn't hold anymore because stocks are doing so well despite QT2. It's actually the opposite. Stocks are doing very well, but QT2 suggests that a contraction in stock market prices could be at hand. Now, I want to pause for a little bit of a segue here for to talk about stocks specifically as another, I would say, sub-component of our framework, which is that stocks potentially over the last 15 years and throughout this idea of a permanent Fed bailout, that's why I call it a sub-component of the framework, if the Fed has an impulse to constantly come in with new liquidity measures anytime anything goes wrong, and we expect this to continue, then can we ever see a material drawdown in stocks? One might suggest no. And so we are not saying that stocks can never crash, but we want you to consider what the Fed does when stocks do see a decline and consider what it might mean for the long-term valuation of equities today versus what they might have been 20 years ago. So consider that the equity market is just this new monetary type asset that derives a lot of value from the PERMA bailout impulse at the Federal Reserve. Something something to think about. Uh, but we definitely don't want to suggest here that stocks are a safe haven. That's not what we're suggesting. Nor are we suggesting that the stock market is guaranteed to decline because we are seeing quantitative tightening too. Again, we're not a prediction engine here. We're trying to give you some sense into how to really interpret these markets and what's going on between central banking and asset prices. Last component here of this Fed bailout framework is I want to show you financial conditions. Now, this is an index that comes from the Chicago Fed. I've looked in detail at the components of this index. It's a really solid mix of different financial market indicators, including what's going on with repo, over-the-counter derivatives, corporate credit spreads, other spreads in fixed income such as asset-backed securities, option pricing, a a whole bunch of nitty-gritty stress measures. These are different ways to see if something is wrong, if there are less buyers than there should be in a certain part of risk-taking. And so the Chicago Fed sums up all of these metrics, and it has a great historical time series on them as well, meaning that it stretches back a few decades. So 
in order to look at what's going on in financial markets, we can actually just look at this one index and get a great sense as to if there's any stress or not. And what you can see is that there just isn't any stress historically right now in financial markets. Look at the spike in financial conditions back in 08, 09, and then again the spike during the pandemic. We are not in restrictive territory or anywhere close. I want to look a little bit closer here in the next chart. This is the same index I have for you, but just looking at a two-year time horizon. And what you can see is, well, yes, last year, 2022, there was some stress. This year, much less stress in the financial sector, but even last year, as stress was rising, it did not go above zero, meaning the markets were not firmly in what, what is con, uh, considered a stressful situation. Now, this two-year time horizon that I show you is going to be consistent with us for the rest of this video. I wanted to show you basically two years of prices for everything in order to give you the full story Yes, the stock market has done really well this year, but we want to show you really what's going on over the last couple years, especially with all monetary policy tightening that went on in 2022. The third and final component of our framework in this summary here, before we get into more of what's going on in financial markets and what to expect from next year, the last part of this framework here for you is that Bitcoin is the new king. Bitcoin is experiencing exponential growth and Bitcoin will rise to a multi-trillion dollar market cap over the next several years. It will continue to dominate the technology landscape and it will continue to capture the imagination of Millions approaching a billion plus people around the world who all use both money and technology on a daily basis. Bitcoin really is experiencing exponential growth. It's the reason we have Bitcoin at the core of our investment framework and research focus at the Bitcoin layer. And it's just worth showing you in this first chart about Bitcoin here what it looks like on a logarithmic scale. We can only use log scales for things that are showing exponential growth. Otherwise, they make much more sense on a linear scale. But Bitcoin's price, I'm showing you two phases of this exponential growth. One is Bitcoin's early years before its first big mainstream bubble in 2017. Which it, it, which it reached the price of about 20,000 US dollars. Since then, and since that crashed down to about $3,000, Bitcoin is experiencing a much steadier rate of growth. And in that much more steady rate of growth and adoption, we see still exponential trends continuing to uh maintain themselves. So if you look at the y-axis here, you can see that Bitcoin approaching six figures and above, so a price of $100,000 and above, it 
doesn't look out of context when looking at Bitcoin on a log scale. And I want you all to think about Bitcoin going above six figures here over the next year or two as it continues to just experience exponential growth. It's not often that you see the stock market triple, but Bitcoin can do that in in rapid fashion. In fact, we're only a few thousand dollars away from Bitcoin tripling in this current cycle that goes back just over a year. This next chart I have for you guys is five-year returns of Bitcoin versus stocks versus gold versus treasuries. And what you can see here that Bitcoin has over 900% growth in the last five years. All of these asset classes are rebased back to 100. So what would $100 invested five years ago be today? Well, it would be over $1,000 if you had invested it all in Bitcoin. It would have doubled if you had your money in stocks. It would have increased about 60% in gold, and it would have declined slightly if you had invested in treasuries. So Bitcoin, again, dominating other asset classes in terms of returns, that is something that we anticipate to continue over multiple time horizons when we measure, right? I'm going to show you here in a second, Bitcoin over the last two years, it doesn't look as pretty. But once you start zooming out and you give Bitcoin enough time, the exponential adoption that it is experiencing will come to dominate the other asset classes. Now, looking at two-year returns here, you can see Bitcoin in orange from 100 to 93, so actually down over a two-year time horizon, while stocks slightly positive. Uh, Gold actually performing the best of the asset classes over the last two years, and treasuries suffering about a 17% decline here in the last couple years. Recovering nicely, yes, over the last couple months, but not nearly enough to recover from the dramatic increase in interest rates during 2022. Now, let's get deeper into markets. Let's look at some charts from around the world, try to recap what happened over the last couple years, and try to derive some information here looking forward. First, let's start with U.S. Treasury yields in the 10-year part of the curve. Now, you can see, of course, over the last two years, a dramatic increase in yields from uh, 1.5% to reaching 5% just a couple months ago. Yields have, of course, fallen sharply here in the last two months in the U.S., but we'll get to that in a second. First, let's just look at the last couple years and try to get a sense of if yields went truly too far. And it is our sense that they did. There was a lot of pressure from the fiscal and the supply side in 2023 that we experienced that might have given yields more of a cushion than they would otherwise have reached. However, we have yields now back below 4%. And it is Our best estimate, something that we have written about for the last couple months, yields are going to come back to this 3.5% level. If you look at the chart here, a big congestion zone throughout the last half of 2022 and the first half of 2023 in the 3.5% area. Now, we're actually not too far away from that today, but it does give us some sense of calm 
thinking that yields have returned to a temporary equilibrium zone here somewhere between 3 and 4%. Now, looking forward, what does this chart tell us? Not much by itself other than that a runaway inflationary sort of environment is off the table when looking at treasury yields here. But what we really need to think about is, again, the cycle-driven approach to investing, which tells us that the flight to safety happens going into a recession. So any sharp decline in treasury yields is a warning signal, something that we're taking very seriously and that we are interpreting here as the beginning of a flight to safety. But of course, with GDP at 5%, the market and the economy are saying very, very different things. So we take treasury yields very seriously. The move lower in treasury yields is a warning sign to us that growth is slowing. And the speed of the current decline in yields is also very noteworthy. Now, it's important here to not just look at treasury yields in isolation. I have for you German yields and UK yields to show you that the decline right here in interest rates, it is being echoed in Europe as the global economy slows. So you see German yields falling from 3% to below 2% over the last couple months and breaking this trend line that it had for all of 2023, the European economy is really struggling and is currently experiencing negative GDP growth. Europe will have to cut rates sometime soon, and you see German bonds performing well, yields falling over the last couple months. In the UK, a similar story. You remember here that we had a Bank of England bailout of UK government bonds back last year and yields in the UK actually reached those levels and topped out around those levels over the course of 2023. But without any central bank action, they yields have fallen back down in chorus with the rest of the world. So this big global slowdown, it is driving yields lower Everywhere you look, it is in anticipation of slow growth, slow inflation, and rate cuts. So that is that is the signal. That is the signal for you guys. We want to strip away all the noise. Look at government yields. They are showing a flight to safety. It is a warning sign. The yield decline is not shallow. It, has, it is sharp. And the signal doesn't get any louder for us. So looking to 2024 and what is the outlook here? Well, the outlook isn't great because of the way that government bonds have behaved here over the last couple months. The Federal Reserve and other central banks are pivoting in that they are talking about when the uh, rate cuts are coming and the timing of the first rate cut. Why would a central bank be cutting rates? Ask yourself that. It's not politics because it's happening around the world. Politics might be one con, uh, one contributor, right? But don't read too much into politics. 
What is slowing is growth and inflation expectations everywhere you look. Rate cuts being priced into the market everywhere you look, regardless of the election cycle. So take the signal from the yields that a flight to safety is happening as we speak. In this next chart, I have for you uh, an easier way to look at the path of interest rates from the central bank here looking forward over the next couple years. You see the step function increase in interest rates across the world during 2022 and the first half of 2023. And what you have is a tapering off and the rates being on pause. And then the lightly shaded areas looking into 2024 and 2025 here on this graph our market pricing of money market curves around the world. And they all are sloping lower in 2024. It means the market is expecting interest rate cuts, a global series of interest rate cuts. Now, in terms of our outlook for 2024, there's nothing that we have a higher conviction on. Rate cuts are coming around the world. We told you before the Fed pivot on December 13th, in which they fully admitted and acknowledged that the path of interest rates would be lower at the policy level. And we are also here to tell you that a series of global interest rate cuts is on its way to being delivered. Europe... Switzerland, Canada, Australia, the United States, every single central bank will be cutting interest rates in 2024. The inflation numbers don't justify interest rates where they are today. Many central banks went too far, including the Fed, and central bank policy rates will be coming down. Instead of trying to project when exactly those will come it's just it's safer here to explain to you guys that looking at the shape of these money market curves while they might not be exact in their timing in terms of the realized prices of these policy rates the slope will be lower Last market price I have for you guys, then we will proceed into our economic review and our recession check. And remember, we have the Bitcoin top stories to watch heading into 2024 for you guys uh, at the end of this video. Now, let's look at the S&P 500 over the last two years, basically a round trip because the all-time high was right at the end of 2021 beginning of 2022. So as we start 2024, we're right back where we started at the all-time high. It is a very, very strong year, has been a very strong year for the stock market, up 20%, but back to where it started two years ago. And now getting into the territory which bears are going to come to the market to see if they can be rewarded. They have struggled mightily here over the last few months as there's been a huge short squeeze. But we will continue to watch the stock market and try to derive any signal. In terms of deriving signal from the stock market, it can't be near the top of your list. 
right? We have discussed many other forms of market indicators that give us a better sense of where we are in the cycle than the stock market. However, yes, the stock market's returns generally do correlate back to the business cycle. So it's not a completely noisy metric. It's just not at the top of our signal meter. Okay, back to one of the first questions that we were asking ourselves. Are we heading for a recession or not? It was our belief that we were heading into one in 2023. Again, clearly we were either wrong or early to that call. Whether we're wrong or early is for you to judge. Now, it does remain our belief that the economy, global economy, is heading into recession. In fact, Europe is already in recession and has been for much of 2023. So let's look at a few economic metrics. Give us a sense. We do have both bearish readings for you on the economy and bullish readings, meaning signs that the economy is doing absolutely fine. So our goal is to show you both sides of the coin, but then, of course, to remind you of our bias, and we will, in a second here, show you a couple more market indicators that reinforce our bias toward that a recession is on its way. Now, the first chart here is comparing industrial production and ISM manufacturing. ISM manufacturing is something we started the video with. It's again reflected here in orange. And in purple, industrial production, you see that below the zero line, meaning that currently industrial production is seeing a year-over-year contraction, down about one-half of 1%. So comparing these two metrics to each other, we can see that they both do experience major, major contractions during recessions. Look at 2009, look at 2020, uh, and what you see here at with industrial production at negative one-half of 1% and ISM manufacturing slightly below 47 is a flat economy. It's not economy in a recession. It is, however, a flat, lifeless economy. And so why you don't see GDP dragged towards zero or below zero, it's because neither of these metrics are showing a large recession. They are showing a slowdown and have been quite weak over the last couple years, especially as interest rates have risen, but not a disaster. And so why have we avoided a recession? Just look at just look at industrial production and ISM manufacturing. These are, again, two of the highest signal economic indicators we have. And they allow us to strip away the hundreds of releases that we get every month. Focus on just a couple and you'll be able to strip away the noise. Now, services remain positive. So manufacturing below 47 here, but services in orange now, above 52, it means it's above the expansion contraction line, which is 50. And it's the reason why the U.S. economy is hanging on. Services are still growing. The consumer is still spending on services and services firms are still expanding. And so in that way, the U.S. economy 
has maintained a very strong bias for 2023, despite all the recession calls, including our own. Here's another way to look at an economy, a U.S. economy, that is incredibly resilient, still doing well. It's the unemployment picture. Now, I have two lines for you here. In orange, unemployment claims on a continuing basis. And in purple, I have the unemployment rate. That unemployment rate, 3.7%, a very unreliable data point, I I should say. Something that we don't put a lot of immediate signal on, especially because it gets revised after the fact. Nevertheless, even on a lagging and a trailing basis, unemployment rate isn't spiking yet. We watch unemployment claims, which are a weekly time series for a much higher signal economic metric. But we want to show you the shape of both of these to show you that historically unemployment is very low. Unemployment claims are very low on an ongoing basis. They are up significantly over the last year, but low historically. The unemployment rate is up a little bit over the year, but low historically. And so when will the consumer slow down when the consumer loses his or her job? But the consumer isn't losing his or her job at any dynamic rate right now. And in that way, the U.S. economy, once again, is hanging on in positive territory. Here's another metric that we consider very, very high signal and a much more bearish reading on the economy is that home sales are in a mega slump. What we've given you here is the sum of existing and new home sales. And you see that the sum here of these two components of the economy, it's it really is struggling. The The housing sector, residential housing is struggling with these higher mortgage rates. Now, prices have hung on in 2023. We've covered that. But the sales turnover is declining. Listings are on the rise. And with housing making up 25% of the U.S. economy, this is something we do really care about. We are continuing to watch. If household formation slows in the U.S., it will contribute to a slowdown in the economy. And this large slump in housing sales, again, a very high signal metric that we have here, it doesn't give us a lot of optimism about what's going on with the churn at the margin in the economy. Remember, everything happens at the margin. Even if you have 97% of people spending the same amount as they did a year ago, if 3% are, are spending much, much less than they were, you're going to find yourself in a recession. So in that way, we do have to look at what's happening on the margin with the economy. The last graph I have for you guys is the Atlanta Fed's GDP now. It is showing an economy growing between 2 and 3%. Again, nowhere near zero. The economy is not in recession and is not even flirting with the recession right now. We're going to continue to watch the high signal metrics that we've shown you today as well as another couple market indicators that we have coming up. But all in all, what we see here is a U.S. economy that is still in expansion. Okay, I have two final market indicators for you guys. The first one is on the yield curve. Now, we've talked about an inverted yield curve and why it translates into a recession indicator. It's because when the 10-year yield is below the 2-year yield, It's suggesting that the forward-looking growth rate 
is much lower than where the policy rate is today. And that restrictive, that restrictive dynamic will translate into a recession looking forward. Now you see here that on the top, what we have is the yield curve above or below zero. The bottom, you have the number of days that the yield curve has been inverted. And what we see is that we are in the most persistent inverted yield curve for the last four decades. So what happens after the curve uninverts? This is something that you guys have been asking about. What would cause the curve to uninvert? It is only, only, only one thing, rate cuts. And rate cuts are the driver of front-end yields lower by themselves, and only that can uninvert the curve. Even though we're getting rate cuts priced in for 2024, they're not getting priced in for right now, and in that way, we still have an inverted curve. So the inversion ends with rate cuts, inversions precede recessions, and rate cuts happen during recessions. So that's how to tie this all together. This curve becomes uninverted when the Fed cuts rates. The Fed will cut rates when the U.S. economy is in a recession. Therefore, the recession will start after the curve uninverts. And that's what this graph is showing you here. So in terms of our outlook and what to expect, we do expect the rate cuts to happen in the recession. So maybe that is, after all, in this next chart, what the money market curve is implying. It's implying 50 basis points of rate cuts by May, 1% of rate cuts by the fall. What could that mean? It could mean that we get a half a basis point cut in June, another one in September, as the U.S. economy is potentially in recession sometime by mid next year. That remains our base case expectation. We're not predicting a recession to start anytime soon. We are using all of the indicators we have to give you guys a sense that we are at the end of this current business cycle, that a recession is long overdue, and that coming off of the tight policy rate, we can expect the rest of the economy to slow. And lastly, the rate cuts that are baked into the 2024 money market curve that you see here are likely a symptom of a recession starting next year. Markets are always forward-looking, so we don't know that a recession is going to start mid-next year. It's what the market is suggesting to us, and we are listening to it. Last but not least, Bitcoin. Here are our top three stories to watch in 2024 for Bitcoin. Number one, a theme that we've been talking about quite a bit over the last few months as we get into the final days, ETF approval. BlackRock, Fidelity, Franklin Templeton, some of the largest asset managers in the world, multi-trillions under management, are finally coming into the spot Bitcoin business. Now, much has been made about what, why is this ETF such a big deal? We don't shy away from the fact that trillions in capital is locked into investment accounts that can only invest in certain regulated instruments. Bitcoin ETFs have not 
to date been available to the trillions in U.S. retirement funds that can, that can buy single-name stocks. Yes, MicroStrategy has been available. Yes, GPTC has been available off exchange. But the rubber stamp from the world's biggest players entering the Bitcoin market, coupled with a massive marketing wave that we have already seen begin, we cannot reduce the impact of what this ETF will do to the access to Bitcoin. Now, taking that increased access and translating it into an actionable prediction that capital will flood into these instruments is part of our analysis. And so we do anticipate a buy the news sort of dynamic here, as well as a buy the fact dynamic, right? Bitcoin has rallied aggressively into approval, and we do believe that we will see a continuation of that rally after approval as the ETFs start removing available supply from the market as their assets under management ramp up. An enormous deal for Bitcoin, a historic, historic moment as well for Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin going mainstream. Well, Bitcoin going mainstream happens one step at a time. And this is definitely one of the biggest steps it's ever taken, happening at a time in which many of the world's leading investment managers have been working on this for many years, Bitcoin products. So a big, big story to watch. By the time you guys are watching this, the approval could could already be with us. So keep your eyes out and you know that you can find everything, the coverage on the ETF uh, with the Bitcoin layer, of course. Now, our second story has to do with Bitcoin behavior. Now, we don't want to just say it's the halving that we're concerned about. The halving is one part of it. Bitcoin will experience a reduction in its supply increase, meaning that the amount of Bitcoin available to the miners every day will reduce in 2024 in April. But it's not just a it's just it's not just a smaller block reward that we're concerned about. It's the behavior of Bitcoin buyers right now which is showing that Bitcoin is not moving. Many, many holders out there are leaving their Bitcoin in cold storage and are not moving those coins back to the exchange. We see those coins coming back to the exchange when holders are looking to sell their Bitcoin. And right now, they are doing the opposite of, of moving them back onto the exchange. They are hoarding them. And in that way, we are looking for Bitcoin price to squeeze higher, especially coming into the potential of ETFs. There's a lot of investor behavior that we're looking at on-chain that is demonstrating people that own Bitcoin are unwilling to part with it right now, especially going into 2024. Could be a combination of the having ETF. We're not, we don't know what, why people are doing this, but it is a pattern that we see Every few years in Bitcoin where we get an enormous hoarding 
tendency heading into the having, we see it happening again. To ignore this, we believe would be foolish. Now the last story, and this is our conclusion heading into 2024. Bitcoin is heading into a greater role of geopolitical dominance. Now what do we mean that by that? I have a chart here of Bitcoin's market cap versus Ethereum's market cap. Instead of looking at the price of ETH BTC, which we do, and which is falling, what we are instead looking here is the multiplier of Bitcoin's market cap to Ethereum's market cap. So right now we have a Bitcoin market cap that's above three quarters of a trillion versus an Ethereum market cap that's closer to one quarter of a trillion. So this 3x number right now, and it is on the rise, but it's not just Bitcoin versus Ethereum and some sort of Bitcoin dominance over altcoins that we're concerned about here. Instead, we are concerned about Bitcoin geopolitical dominance. That means that with every day that goes by, another city, state, country gets into the Bitcoin business either by passing a regulation, passing a pro-Bitcoin policy, or having one of its citizens start a Bitcoin business or engage in Bitcoin mining. And in that way, governments, local, federal, are embracing Bitcoin slowly. There are, of course, going to be jurisdictions that introduce anti-Bitcoin measures, but the number of ones that are experiencing these Bitcoin adoption occurrences, such as uh, pro-Bitcoin regulation or a new Bitcoin miner, or even a new Bitcoin investor that is passionate about protecting his or her holdings within that jurisdiction, Bitcoin is rising. We see Bitcoin coming into the fold here with a new president in Argentina. That's just one example of geopolitical dominance. Each government that chooses a pro-Bitcoin policy reinforces other pro-Bitcoin policies from around the world, and it reinforces Bitcoin's brand in which it stands alone across the world as the only decentralized currency that ever existed. And with a computer-based currency, an internet-based currency that doesn't have a center, the natural tendency of Bitcoin to seep into the geopolitical realm is something that we will absolutely see continue in 2024, 2025, and long into the future. 2024 will be a year just like any other in which Bitcoin and the use cases for Bitcoin come and come into the fold and everyone is reminded of them. Every single currency crisis, every single every single blockade of money from a geopolitical perspective. We saw what happened in the Russia-Ukraine war. Every single geopolitical event has the opportunity to demonstrate to the world why Bitcoin is a potential solution. And so you will see the numbers, the adoption numbers increase. That doesn't always directly increase the price, but growing the size of the network will contribute to the value of that network. And that value, even though it is incredibly volatile in the market's eyes is trending higher. We can finish here bringing back 
the exponential adoption of Bitcoin. Think about Bitcoin on a logarithmic scale. Think about how often it is doubling in size. And think about a billion people using Bitcoin in the future. Thanks for sticking with us today at the Bitcoin Layer. We hope you have a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year, and we'll catch you in 2024. The Bitcoin Layer is very proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out today for a special offer at river.com slash TBL for up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free. River is a Bitcoin only exchange and we want you guys to make sure you are getting allocated in the safest way possible. Go check them out today.